Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Hey, welcome, Mikkel and Tor from Stargate to And The Writer Is. I had some questions because you guys started this music program called LAMP, and I wanted to know more about it. Um, how is LAMP different from the other music programs? Well, Ross, as you know, music has been my passion since I was a kid. And I actually applied to music school but didn't get in. So we knew at LAMP we had to be very different from traditional education. We will see you and hear you purely based on your talent. Did anyone ever ask you about your GPA in a session? I think not. We actually teach you how music is done in the real world, like you're in the Stargate session. Amazing. I- If I wanted to be a part of it, how would I apply? Simply go to lampmusic.com. That's L-A-A-M-P music.com. We think a lot of the most interesting people in music don't necessarily have high school or college education, so we don't require any degrees. All you need to do is uh, send in your music, and uh, that's uh, how we decide who gets into the program. This is a, a paid program, so what... You know, if I have to pay to be a part of it, what kind of value would I be getting as a student? You'll leave with an amazing number of songs in your catalog because the absolutely most valuable thing in the music business is the, are the actual songs. You'll also have studio time every single day and collaborate with other super talented people in the community. And since we're also bringing in top executives, publishers and managers, it's also a great place to connect and have your music heard by some pretty amazing people. What would a week look like at this program? So every Monday we have a new mentor coming in and they're talking about their most valuable lessons. Uh, Then we go to the studios and start writing on this week's assignment. Uh, And then the mentor will go from room to room and actually interact and work and and help write these songs and shape these ideas. Uh, And we deliver them on Friday. And every Monday we have a listening session, give feedback and the whole uh, process repeats. Who, who are some of the mentors? Some of the mentors we have so far are Justin Tranter, Neo, Circuit, Jossie, John Cunningham, Emily Warren, Charlie XX, and of course us, Stargate. So here's the real question. Can greatness be taught? Well, most of our students will already be pretty good. Uh, so we focus on the difference between good and great. 
And I think every single mentor that's in this program, they've done great stuff. So they know what that sounds like and feels like. And our mission is to help you take your music to the next level. How can I find more information on this? You go to our website, which is lampmusic.com with two A's, or our Instagram, which is also lampmusic. And uh, that's where you uh, send your music in and uh, apply. For those who don't know what LAMP stands for, what is it? Los Angeles Academy for Artists and Music Production. Awesome. awesome. Congratulations. And uh, I hope some of our listeners get to be participants. This is really cool, man. Congrats. Thank you so much, Ross. Thanks, Ross. Speak to you soon. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's multi-Grammy-nominated song, Craftsman, isn't just a multi-platinum, multi-genre producer. He isn't just a weirdo. Nope. He isn't just a master of melody, but he is the only harmony we've ever had on this show. (laughs) After having crafted records with R&B pop legends like Mary J. Blige, Neo, John Legend, Fantasia, Rihanna, etc., etc., etc. This guy started a community of open-minded intellectuals who advocate for and practice self-acceptance with one of our prominent and the writer is alums. All the way from East St. Louis via Tennessee, this guest is an actual artiste and the writer is Chuck Harmony. Yes, yes. What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing great. How you doing? Uh, you know, I, I, you wouldn't remember this, but I met, I met you at like, a, I want to say it was like a Grammy party or something like that, you know, 10 years ago kind of thing. Mm. And, uh, I just remember it being, you know, when, when you're, when you don't have like the songs that people know you as like, for me, I just didn't, I was hustling so hard right. and it's like, you know, m- I just remember that that feeling of meeting someone where you're like, oh man, that guy's that guy's a legend. This guy has it figured out. So it's, oh, cool, it's cool to have a to have a conversation with you. Yeah, man. Now you know, many years later. But uh, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. Can't complain. Um, you've lived in all kinds of cities in this country that have prominent music histories. Uh-huh. Uh, and you started in East St. Louis, which is actually in Illinois, for those who don't know. Exactly. Um, there are so many huge writers and artists that have come out of East St. Louis. Why? Why East St. Louis? Yeah, why East St. Louis? Why is it? What is it about St. Louis that creates good music? You know, I, th- I think... St. Louis is a an East St. Specifically, East St. Louis. It's like it's such a, a a good center for creativity because it's like you got Chicago, you got Memphis, and people traveled here from the South to um, for a better life. That's why they migrated from Mississippi's and North Carolinas to come here. And so it's so much, so much history, so much. Um, so much musical um, history in in the in the soil here that you can't help but if if that bug bites you you can't help but but uh, take your, it and take it seriously. Were your parents musicians? My father was a, mu- a musician. So he could sing really well. He was ma- mainly a preacher, but he could sing really well. Oh, so but you he, grew up? You grew up doing music in church? Yeah. 
I, I fell in love with the drums first, probably like most black little boys who <laughs> just want to beat on some things. But I fell in love with the drums first and uh, I just went from there to the tuba to the trombone, I, just following music wherever it took me. Tuba and trombone, tuba is is kind of nuts because I don't <laughs> know, like other than marching bands, like and 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 sort of traditional choruses or, or orchestras, like where do you where do you hear a tuba? I mean, it's amazing for a producer and a writer because you learn it's a it's you know old fashioned bass line. Yeah. You know, but what kind of music were you playing that brought you into tuba? And- well, I was I was I was in uh, the marching band at Lincoln, and and so we were playing all of the the hits of, of the of that era, and so it just really gave me a passion for bass lines, and um, that's the foundation of, of a lot of great songs, especially the songs that I like, like Quincy Jones. He's a bass line guy, and so um, that's where I got that love. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people in sessions naturally bring out sort of just block chords. Mm-hmm. They just sort of they want you to write a, a really cool melody around that. And what it's sort of a big mistake because a bass line allows you to play with someone else. You know? Yeah. Chords yeah that, sort of a walk that, sound, and a bass line's like a feeling. Right. There has to be some some groove to the to the situation at all times. I don't care. Like I am a core guy. Like piano is my main instrument, but I have to find a groove, even if it's internally, to where I can present the foundation of something. Um, did you listen to music in the house that wasn't, uh, you know that? that wasn't religious music? Did your dad listen mostly to, you know, church music if he's a preacher or was he listening to, you know, all kinds of music? Well, first, uh, mainly we listened to gospel music. Mm -hmm. You know, my father, he was an avid music listener. So, but he left when I was nine. So I had this small window with his musical influence. And so when he was around, it was Anita Baker and Marvin Gaye and Miles Davis and Stevie Wonder. Like he was, a, he was a real Joe Sample, Herbie Hancock. His and I would sit there at three years old and just listen, watch him listen to music. And so I got all of that early. But when he left, my mom was like, "If it ain't gospel, it ain't right." So she don't want to hear it. And so from that point. I was listening to all gospel music until I got into the jazz band and the choir at school and just went from that point. And listening to music outside, you know, because if you were exposed to that, knowing that that music existed and then, you know, you're listening to gospel at home. Yeah. Did you, in, in that time between that and jazz band, were you ever sneaking records? No. What it allowed me to do, I tell people this all the time, it allowed me to dream up my own music i started writing songs at like 10 or 11 because i had that that musical history with my father and so this time at the gospel time where we were only allowed to listen to gospel music i was just writing in my head and i was playing on my instruments and learning so that was my musical um nut if you will why are so many good songwriters um why were they, what is the connection between church music, gospel music? Why does that work so well in 
pop music? What in that training helps so much in, in pop and R&B and, you know, any sort of commercial music outside of gospel? It seems like all the good musicians played in church. Why? I think because church, there's a, a competitiveness to the, to the music. And so you had to be great. Like you had to be really good to play at church. Like if you are the drummer, there's a lot of people that want to be the drummer at that church. So you actually have to be great. And so you just, I, I think playing in church allow musicians to hone their chops at a high level. You know what I'm saying? And so when you get in the pop world, if you got chops up here or in the sky, then when you get in the pop world, you don't really need all of that. And so you can kind of you can kind of pick and choose. You know, you know, learn the major the the vast majority of music that you need to do pop music. When you started playing in jazz band, did you play having already played at that point a bunch of instruments? What was your instrument in jazz band? Believe it or not, I was the vocalist in jazz band. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Did it sound like anybody in particular? Did I sound like anybody in particular? You no, know, like when when I if you're a jazz drummer, you want to be Chick Webb, and if you're a yeah. you know if you're a saxophonist, you want to be you know Charlie Parker, whatever it is, you want to be yeah. you know Miles Davis if you're on trumpet. But when you're a singer, there's sort of a you know there's a rich history of great singers in jazz, and I feel like. How do you not, you know, I don't know. What did you listen to that you want, you know, did you emulate anybody? Yeah, I emulated Nat King Cole. Oh, yeah. That was, he was kind of like, Nat King, me studying Nat King Cole for jazz as a singer allowed me to start opening up as a piano player when I got to college. Because Nat King Cole is a beyond great piano player as well as he is a singer. And so that's who I emulated. I just thought. First of all, he used a lot of his classical um, knowledge to present the kind of jazz that he presented, which was cool for me because I was in choral uh, chorus and stuff. So I was learning like operatic stuff. And so it allowed me to still use that and do jazz. Where did you go after high school with having that skill set of playing all those instruments? Did you stay in East St. Louis or when did you... No, I, at 17, I graduated high school at 17 and I moved to uh, Alabama. I got a, a, a full paid scholarship for singing, actually. And um, that was my first stop of many because I, I moved around quite a lot. But I was always following music. You know what I'm saying? Wherever music would take me, I'll go. So you moved to Alabama for music, what kind of, did you still study jazz in school? Yeah, but I was, I, w- I wasn't singing jazz. I was, I was in the, the, the choir. And so oh. with the choir, if you're on full pay scholarship, they kind of limit all the singing that you could do. So I used that time to start learning how to play the piano, like really get into it. Like I was introduced, like I said, I was introduced to the piano through Nat King Cole in high school, but I didn't really know how to play. And so I never really thought that I would be a piano player. But once I got to college, I honed in on that. And one of the band directors heard me play. And I was just learning, like really just learning how to play. And he was like, so who have you been studying with? And I was like, 
nobody. He's like, how long you been taking lessons? I was like, I just started. And he was like, you know how to read piano music? I was like, no, I know how to read tuba music and trombone music, but I just like, I'm really just learning this thing. And he was so impressed because he thought I'd been studying jazz that whole time as a piano player. So he gave me a scholarship and um, I went from there. Did you write at that point? When did you start writing? Was it as soon as you could play piano or were you writing even earlier? I was writing. I I would write lyrics all the time. Um, Starting nine, 10 years old, I would take these. uh, um, I don't know if you remember, but they would have these. uh, What you call it? These these tapes that you can sing to. Like like when beneath my wings, it would just have the track and the and the background vocals. What you call a TV track kind of thing? Like an at home karaoke thing. Yeah, yeah. And they used to use that those kinds of things at the church that I went to, and so I would take the tapes home and just start writing to the the instrumentals of that, and so that, and then sing them at church sometimes. Do you remember what the first song was that you wrote? No. I, re- I remember my pastor really giving me a hard time about making sure my lyrics were right because I wrote it. It was my first song and I was like, I want to sing it next Sunday. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I was, I was all so bold. But um, he really scrutinized my lyrics. He was like, yeah, because I can't have like false doctrine. I, I went to a predominantly white church and I was, I was like one of the only black kids at the church. And so... I was already eyeballing, I'm, but I'm full of bigger about this song that I just wrote. So he went and just scrutinized the lyrics. And he was like, honestly, I can't find nothing wrong with it. It's actually good. And he let me sing it. That's amazing. Did, uh... he, he said it made sense doctrine-wise, which like as a 10-year, I was just writing whatever I felt or whatever I heard. But that was the beginning. I mean, it must say a lot about, you know, listening to gospel records growing up, I imagine that it keeps, you know, I feel like we all naturally sort of emulate the kind of music that we're listening to. Mm-hmm. So it's, I remember a professor talking about how like you, your musical diet, whatever music you take in is the music you're going to put out mm-hmm. in a lot of levels. And I think that's interesting that even at that age, you were writing authentic music for that genre. Yeah. When, when did you start thinking about writing music, you know, secular music, when you're starting to write music outside of lyrics, outside of the church? That didn't come to much later on. I actually fell into songwriting again, like through rap music, because after, after college, the, the jazz bug bit me. And so I was, I, my desire was to be a jazz piano player. For the longest, that was I was on that track. Like I, I didn't care nothing about no lyrics. I was just instrumentals and me just doing my thing and coming up with these these kind of jazz compositions. And uh, that led to me meeting this rap producer. He just happened to hear one of these jazz songs that I was doing, and he was like, "Yo, you produce?" I was like, "Produce? I don't even know what that means." I was like, I'm a jazz piano player, and so he was like. You should come by the house and, ju- and and just do what you do, and I'll show you how how to produce. His name was K.O. Cates, by the way. But um, I used to K. go over his... K.O. Cates. I think his biggest record he had to date was uh, 
uh, T.I., why, why you want to go and do that? Dun, 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 yeah. yeah, but he, I would go over his house and he would just have this drum loop playing and I will just start doing my thing over it, minus the, the piano improv- improvisations and kind of how my music sounds now. It, that's how it started. It was really orchestral and I'm always thinking about a string arrangement under the bass line and the, the keyboards and all. like it was I was at that place when I first started that's what my jazz was going to sound like and so just working with him and seeing how he he turned that into like rap songs that inspired that whole thing were you in I forgot were you in Atlanta at this point I was in Atlanta so what brought you from Alabama to Atlanta Clark Atlanta University okay I got a, a, a scholarship to play in a jazz orchestra out there. And so I moved. I always wanted to, to move out there because when I was in, at Alabama, I was also in a singing group. And so um, we used to go to Atlanta and just try to do boys to men covers and stuff. <laughs> but, but we never made it. Um, what was that group called? The Truth. Why didn't, did you guys do original music too? Uh, we tried at it. I I just think, yeah, I was way into, I was way into jazz and and way into boys to men. And so we were really just trying to be boys to men. (laughs) We just wanted to do covers and maybe get a record deal, but it wasn't, we wasn't really into, like we weren't recording a lot. That that wasn't our thing. We was doing shows. I feel like people think jazz is, um, if you don't know anything about jazz, it's just that that music and they don't realize the difference that so many different variations of being a piano player in that world. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're uh Duke Ellington versus Count Basie versus Thelonious Monk versus, mm-hmm. you know, Nat King Cole or whatever it is, they're, they're all going to be so different. Yeah. Did you, um, did you find yourself, you know, becoming your own style or did you find yourself being more, you know, the Duke Ellington kind of writing to me, it was always really chord stuff, like just really interesting chord changes versus <laughs> Thelonious Monk, which is like, how many keys can you stomp on with like emotion? You know, it's like yeah. different. What kind of piano playing would you it's, it's your jazz it's, it's funny because up until recently, I didn't understand a lot about my piano playing because when people hear me, they'd be like, man, you're original, you're original. Like, I don't hear people play like you. And that don't mean that I'm better than anybody. It's just an original thing. And so I didn't realize um, up until recently how much uh, being self-taught had a lot to do with that. And I have a condition where my hands shake. It's just a, it's hereditary. My mom hands shake. And, and so that ailment also affects the way I play the piano tremendously which get, actually gives me a unique sound. It gives me a unique way of expressing myself. How does it affect your piano playing? I mean, your hands shake at any moment. And so I feel like the the heaviness of, of, of my piano playing, which is it's always, a, even, if it's, even if it's sweet, it's still in an aggressive way. I feel like that's me overcompensating for the fact that my hands might shake at any moment. So I got to make sure that like it's, it's a, uh, it's a real aggressiveness that comes to my approach to playing 
because there's some overcompensation, but it, it makes it makes for the most honest expression. When you're in Atlanta and you're shown what production is, I feel like a lot of people don't get mentors and they don't get people who just kind of, you know, show them how the ropes and, and how to record in a studio. Mm. When did you go from um, like, wow, that's production to give me this studio for an hour. I'm going to make my own beats. Um, Your skill set of playing drums, knowing bass lines, playing piano. I mean, what an amazing skill set. And being able to sing, that says you can write 100% songs, which right. so few people can. Now, when did you start saying, oh, no, I got this. I'm going to try to do all of it. Yeah. And, and this is no disrespect to KO because I love KO and I really appreciate what, he, what he's done for me in this regard. But once I found out that the producer in rap music was literally... Like if you can make a beat, like literally like an NPC, like if you can do that thing and it's quantized and you can get anybody to play on it. He's the producer and I was the the guy that played keys, additional keyboards or whatever the credits would read. And I was like, but literally like a beat would be playing and everybody would be out the room and I would make this whole orchestration. And I was like, I could do the beat. I, I, I play drums. And so I bought me an MPC and then I just went into my, into my zone, just trying to create music from my own point of view. When you were finished making those first beats, who did you send them to? Nobody. Yeah. I was, I was an introvert. I, I'm, I, I, like a lot of times people, um, they think of successful people and they think of hustlers. Like they think of people who just out and they just like sending their beats. But by the time life had beat me up from that little kid where I was bold enough to give my, my, um, my song to my pastor and ask him to, to uh, let me sing it up until this point, life had beat me up. You know what I'm saying? And so I wasn't as confident. So I was just literally listening to him and, playing for people that I knew and just by the grace of God, it was, it, I was always in a position where somebody would respect my talent enough to pass it along or, or say this, this guy is good. And that's how my name got the circling around um, Atlanta. This, this guy, well, a couple of people, one of my ex-girlfriends, she would play my music for any, everybody. And huh. she she introduced me to is she in the music industry or is she just is or is she just a fan <clears throat> was she just she was she was my girlfriend she had been in the music business and she got out of it and so when she met me I met her at church and so we just had more of a a personal relationship and I was scared to play her my songs and I played her this one song uh called All This Time. It was a hundred percenter. I just, I wrote it, produced it. It was a ballad. I got somebody else to sing it. And I played it for, and she, she for the longest I was asking, I was like, I, I, I kind of do music. And um, she was like, I don't really want to hear your music because if it's whack, I'm not going to like you anymore. Mm. And so uh, one day I get, I built up enough nerve to pl- just start playing it in my car. 
and she was blown away by it. And so she used some of her connects at a certain point to introduce me to interesting people like Tony Rich. And I met Pebbles uh, from, from back in the day. I started playing at her church and I did her gospel album. And it's just always worked like that. What year is that? Mm, it's like 2000. It was right before I got into business. So I got into business like 2007. It's like 2003, 2004. So 2003 and 2004, all the way to when you said you were getting into the business, that's three years of hustling, you know, yeah. going to the studio and making music. What are you, um, you know, if you're not already selling records or selling beats or, you know, are you playing shows? Like how, how do you make yeah. a living in Atlanta if, you know, before you make? Well, I was making a good living in Atlanta. I was uh, the music director of one of the biggest United Methodist churches in, in that whole region called Ben Hill United Methodist Church. And so I was making like a real person's salary as a musician. Like I had a nice house and two cars. Like I was <laughs> amazing. And I was also playing around town. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I had a steady gig with this guy named Milkshake. Um, and he always had a gig Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. No matter what, come rain or shine, he had a gig Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we met at that United Methodist Church. And I started playing for him. And that was a, it was a lucrative little situation for myself. Why leave that situation? Uh, Neo. Neo was literally the only person that could get me out of that situation. That that was the only opportunity where I was like, yeah, I'm not going to pass this up. Because I, I was like, I was really indifferent about like overexerting myself to try to make it in this business. Like I was good and I was doing people's demos and I was doing songs like for Tony Rich and Pebbles. Like Everybody wants to be a millionaire. Don't get me wrong, but I was saying at that point, coming from where I came from, I was in a good place. So, and I was also grown. So you couldn't just pull the wool over my eyes. And so a lot of opportunities of, from Daryl Simmons wanting to sign me and uh, Dallas Austin. It was a lot of different people that wanted to sign me and put me under them. And I was just like, nah, I'm good. And it was uh, Neo. I mean, it's not like Dallas is like a, a songwriter Hall of Famer. And then, you know, you have some of these op options. Why? What is it about Neo that pulls you into, you know, Because I, I was, when I heard Neo, I heard a freshness of songwriting. And at that point, I was knee deep into producing. Like I was, I was way more focused on producing than songwriting. And so I wanted a top liner that real that I can expand with. You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't I didn't want to be with another beat maker because what were we gonna do? We, were gonna, we at a certain point we were gonna have to compete. And so, and I didn't just want to be with an ordinary songwriter because I I could write that. I wanted to be with um, somebody who really understood the craftsmanship of of songwriting. And when I got that call, that my music had reached his hands and he wanted to meet me and his team wanted to meet me. I was ecstatic. It was crazy because literally a week prior to that call, I was on a highway and his song because of you came on the radio and that Michael Jackson bridge. 
I had to pull my car over. And because it was so good. It was so Michael Jackson. I was like, that's what I'm talking about. That's what that's who I need to be writing with. That's what that's what I need. Next week, I was in the studio with Neil. Yeah, that's how did how does that what what happened in your life? Do you think that made that timing? I, I, I have no idea. The way my song got to Neo was so crazy. Uh, it was actually just a track. And I, I was telling the story to the artist, Maya, because I'm working on her album now. I was telling her this because she didn't even remember it. She wouldn't even know how to know this. But anyway, this guy that wasn't even a producer or anything. He was just a, a guy that I guess wanted to be in the music business. He was going around town saying he was looking for tracks for Maya. And so uh, the songwriter that I was working with at the time was Sean, me, Sean Fuller. He introduced me to this guy and I was like, cool, I'll send him this one track. And I sent him this one track and he contacted me and he was just like, y'all, like all the baloney because he wanted me to sign to him before he would give me this opportunity. And it just went back and forth and I never heard from him again. And one day he called me like maybe seven, eight months later. He was like, I want to pick you up because I need you to hear something. And he picked me up and uh, he played me this song and it was Neil's voice on it. And I was like, what the hell? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, how, what is this? What is this thing? And he was like, yo, Neil heard this song and he want to cut it. But still the, the whole thing was I had to sign to him to get to Neil. And so I was like, nah, I'm cool. I'm good. And um, so time went on. I, he was bugging me about it. And I, I, was, I just stopped answering the calls because I was like, I'm not doing that. And um, this guy that I knew, this other guy that I know named Askia Fountain, he called me one day and he was like, Neo team want to meet you. And I was like, why? He was like, because that song that he cut that was for his artist. And you're the only one with the session. Oh, wow. Because the, the dude couldn't produce this. He couldn't produce the, the, the stems, the, the track. Right. So I had that. And so that's how I met Neo. So many people always try to figure out how do they get in the business. And, you know, the short answer is write better songs. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's because you can't make that up. And no matter who you know, they could send... You know, Neo gets sent all kinds of things. And in right. the time, like, like at that point in his career, like he must have been just flooded with music. So for your song to stick out enough that they have to hunt you down to get these tracks. Yeah, it, man. It, there's nothing you can do in the business to make that happen other than actually just create the track. Yeah. I tell, I, I hate that question uh, when people ask me, what do, what can I do? Because it's, Nothing you can't do, like you said. Like, what can you do but live your life and create music and one day opportunity, if it's meant to be, will present itself. At that point, you know, by the time songs with Neo come out, you before that, you had already had, I mean, you had a song with Celine Dion. You had a song with Mary J. Blige in 2007. I don't know that there was a song with Neo that came out until after that, at least looking at your discography. No, those 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 were the first songs I wrote with Neo when I met Neo. They're with Neo. Yeah, I, I wrote with Neo. So crazy. I mean, once yeah. you start getting those kinds of names, 
coming out of the box. What did your mom think knowing that, you know, you were supposed to like, you were brought up to listen to gospel music and here you come out with, you know, Celine Dion, Mary J. Blige, Neo, you know, Janet Jackson, John Legend, all like back to back. Yeah. Uh, I I, th- I think musicians in general get such a bad rap that my mom was, was not excited about me that being my career. Plus they never really seen it work. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're coming from the hood and you see all these great musicians and all the churches and all the drummers and all the all these people that can sing, and you say, like, out of all of these people, I'm gonna be the one that right with Celine Dion and Mary J. Even when it started happening, she couldn't really believe it, or she might have felt like I was over exaggerating it or a little bit, because it it was excitement, but it was kind of like one day that's gonna go away really fast. <laughs> and you're gonna need a real job. When and did- so think they, that wasn't the case? Like, when did they realize that this was something that was going to... When my mom walked to the, the Grammy's red carpet for the first time, I, and I introduced her to Rihanna, huh. and I, I let her do an interview with that she's still looking for to this day. She can't find this interview that she did with some... You know how it's a whole bunch of people doing interviews on the red carpet? It was one person that interviewed her and to this day she can't find the footage. But when that happened and she saw the respect, which with uh, the way people treated me, she knew it was real. Because before, like, she, I never invited her to the studio and Nobody really knows what a producer is. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're not in the music business, you know, now they do. But back then, they didn't know what a producer was. So me saying I produced something was like, I could have said I engineered and she wouldn't know the difference. I could have said I recorded it and she wouldn't know the difference. So it wasn't like the producer to her. When you said the community grew up and there were all these people who were so talented... Did you start feeling pressure or were people starting to ask you favors to get in the business? Or, you know, I would imagine even, you know, the amount of people who send me messages online that are like that I know who are, you know, my little cousin wants to be a musician. Will you check out their music? Yeah. You know, um, how soon after, you know, Neo and Mary J. Blige are just royalty and Janet Jackson, obviously, you know, but these people are royalty. Mm. Um, did you get, was there, was there uh, any sort of community pressure or was it all sort of, you know, you know, were they really proud of you or is there both, you know, or were there people who were trying to get into your musical world? Uh, no, the blessing for me is that Chuck Harmony is not my real name. Hmm. And I'm a super private person. And so most people up until recently, until Lewis York still didn't put two and two together about Chuck Harmony and Charles Harmon from East St. Louis that I used to play such and such with. Like that's 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 like recent stuff. Yeah, we're the same age. And I think, you know, at that point, there's still not, you know, Facebook is new. Yeah. You know, there's, there's MySpace probably just at the tail end of that, but you know, there's no way that people are keeping in touch with you from high school. There's not really that thing. And it wasn't that long ago, but at that point, if you were living in Atlanta or LA or wherever, and you're working, you know, there's some 
small rumors here or there, but there's not, you know, everybody from your high schools, your friend, yeah. social media watching everything you do. Right. When you say God, yeah, for sure. When you said till recently, what does that mean? Why did why did people? Why are people now figuring out what you did then? I, I think I think East St. Louis is a small place. So any anytime you're from East St. Louis and then you start doing things like out in the open, like I I never as a producer, I never really had a publicist, and I wasn't I wasn't at no parties or and I was just not that kind of guy, and so. When I start, when we started Lewis Short and we had to start giving interviews and we had to start doing things and I start saying who I was and where I was from and what high school I went to. And then it just, and with social media, it's just now I'm Facebook friends with a lot of, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people from high school and a lot of people from East St. Louis that I don't know. And a lot of people from Alabama that I don't remember. And a lot of people from Atlanta, you know what I'm saying? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The amount of songs you have released between basically 2008 through 2015, 16, it's just insane amount of music. But what's even crazier is how many different kinds of artists you're working with, which is different than as a songwriter where I think sometimes I write songs, but I don't even meet the artist who cuts the songs. Mm. That's different than when you're a producer and you're actually in the studio with all the different artists. Right. Uh, my assumption looking at these, the amount of songs that you released during this time is that you had no life, but you were in the studio. <laughs> Yeah, your assumption would be correct. I still don't have no life, life and I'm always in the studio. I'm what? in there six to seven days a week, every week. Why? Why so? Why so much music? Because I want to grow. You know what I'm saying? Like my my whole my whole thing with music is that it's exploration, and so I think if you look at my discography, it's like it's like. Uh, the reflection of my exploration of music, not necessarily like my hustle and grind to be successful. It's just like, if I'm doing gospel right here, it's because that's how I'm expressing myself or if I'm doing whatever I'm doing. And so that's always, if you always exploring, then it's always new. 
So it, like how I feel going into the studio today is how I felt when I first went in with Celine Dion. It's literally how I feel. And I could be going in by myself. I can be going in with Claude, just me and Claude. I could be going in with K. Michelle. I could be going in with anybody. Like I always feel like I first felt I get the jitters. I say my prayers every every time. Well, in this next segment, what would Claude Kelly ask Chuck Harmony on And The Writer Is? He has mm. questions for you. Okay. He says, number one, put together a dream roster of five artists <laughs> that you can write for, produce for, that mm. would undeniably blow people's minds. Who are the mm. five artists? Dream roster. Okay, I'm going to answer the question, but the, the reason why I start laughing so hard is because that was the game that made us become best friends. Like we would just sit for hours, literally for hours, like give me five artists you assign, top five producers, give me the, the five best songs. And we were just like, you got a record label, who are you signing? And so that's why that's so funny because that's such a Claude and Chuck question. I mean, he literally, he says, I literally ask him these questions every week. So it, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm laughing. Definitely on the same page. Who are, the yeah, man. Five, who are the five artists that would blow people's minds? I think if I could get in the studio and do an album, and it's going to sound cliche, but I'm going to tell you why. Um, with Rihanna, I feel like it would blow people's minds because I've done a song with Rihanna, which was Russian Roulette, and I I felt like I was only scratching the surface of the musicality that I could give Rihanna that act. Because everything she does is cool. She could do opera and it would be cool. So as a producer and as a musician, I could take off the cool hat and just be as musical and expansive as I wanted to be. And with her tone and her approach and her originality, I feel like it was set so well on something super musical. Kind of how Janet and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis set. I like that one. All right, surprise me. Name some musical influences the world would be shocked to know you study often. Mm. I study Tracy Chapman often. Really? Yeah. I've her first album, I've had it like at every point of my life. I've I've had it on tape, I've had it on disc i've had it on itunes i got it on spotify like i'm just like i'm obsessed with that and anytime that i start feeling like i'm not i'm forgetting why i do music i go and listen to her album and it it just puts me back in the place of it's about presenting raw emotion to people and so that that is one of my heavy 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 influences um Another one of my heavy influences is John Bryan, the, yeah. uh, the music producer. I love his voice. I love the way he writes songs. He's a hundred percent or two and heavy, heavy influence. Uh, and Ray Charles, people wouldn't think that if you look at my discography, you probably wouldn't see any like Ray Charles sounding songs, but he's one of my biggest influences. Like it's like, if I'm, it, no matter, I could be making the beat for Pretty Girl Rock, but what I'm singing in my heart 
it's the most soulful Ray Charles song. <laughs> you understand? Like that's that's where I get the that's where the soul comes from. It comes from that influence. I remember when that Tracy Chapman first album came out, we were probably like 12 or something or like 14, mm-hmm. somewhere in that world. Just remember that, that being a thing where it's like she could, um, we listened to that a lot in our house. And I, I just remember that being a, a window into a world that I didn't really know existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was presented in these songs that, wasn't just straight up singer songwriter, you know, like all the stuff that you get later that almost sound like the India Ari, even her now. Like, there's so many things that go trace back to the her lineage, and that that album was so honest, both musically yeah. and lyrically, and it really was, you know, for a for an uh, an album like that to mean something across all genres and across all people and cultures. Mm-hmm. It's like a rem- it's a reminder that you can write about you can write from an honest place, and and that's going to actually help you out than trying to write you know a hit song. Her songs were hits because they were so honest, not because they were trying to be something they weren't. Yeah, and I, I, every time I hear it, I hear that that honesty. I don't I don't I, between her and Ray Charles and Bob Marley. I haven't really heard honesty record recorded that well before. Yeah. Um, all right, we still have a couple more cloud questions. So, okay. What books, docs, films are you studying before you create? Mm. The Four Agreements is one of my favorite books. It changed my life. Um, I don't know that book. What's that book? Uh, it's a I think it's, I think the author name is, author's name is something Miguel Luis. Ah, I forget his name, but it's a book. It's it's a book about wisdom. It's a, from a Toltec tradition and it just, it covers everything in a general sense. It covers everything that you need to, to do to just become a, a clearer thinker on this, on this journey. And so, um, like, some of the things it talks about is, like, being impeccable with your word. And that, that, that's just across the whole, just in life, that's a good idea to always be impeccable with your word. So it's kind of general things like that. But once you apply it to your life, then it just makes you a better person. I highly recommend it. If you can pick one. Who would you choose, James Taylor or Elton John? Mm. Only somebody that know me would know to ask that question. I would have to pick Elton John. Yeah. For for the the core progression of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road alone, like I just I remember how that opened up, and I saw how cores can make the heavens open up. You know what I'm saying? You know what part I'm talking about? that part when i heard it for the first time the heavens literally opened up in my heart and i was like this is what music is i love it it's also the the chord change at the very end of that that uh 
yes, yes, Lord. That's it right there, man. That's that is that is the musical orgasm of life. And so I and I'm a total James Taylor fan to the core, but for that alone, I gotta give it to Elton. You know, oh, crazy oh, people okay. don't realize, you know, you mentioned Rihanna, you mentioned James Taylor and Elton. They didn't all, you know, they all took outside songs mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. Elton never wrote a lyric. Right. And I think that a lot of times people look at classic artists, and even though James Taylor wrote a lot of 100% songs, he still was willing to, on occasion, take songs that he didn't write. Right. I think there's something about collaboration in the business that you know nobody really wants to talk about, but it's so essential in creating good music is to mm-hmm. not have to be the guy who does everything. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who can write 100% songs, you know, I still try to push myself to do that sometimes. Do you still write 100% songs? Yeah, I do every now and again, but I I also try to keep myself in a room with people that's better than me. So that's why I always gravitated to the Neos and the Claude Kellys because A, I'm not a selfish person. I don't, I don't want to write a hundred percent song because I want to be the person that wrote a hundred percent. That's just a feeling that I had. This is something I want to express. And so when there is, but when we're talking about presenting art, then you're talking about getting the best case scenario. And that's when I put my producer's hat on because the song has to be the best case scenario. I don't care who write it. You know what I'm saying? And so a lot of times I want to surround myself in a room with a songwriter that's actually much better than me. A, I can learn from that, but B, I'll just get a better song. Now we've obviously mentioned Claude Kelly a lot in this already, who has been on this podcast, very successful songwriter you guys have become such close collaborators across so many different things. You guys are business partners. You guys are, you know, art mates. Uh, you guys do so many things together. Describe like how, how you guys met and what it is you guys are doing, why you're doing it in Nashville. Tell, tell the whole story of, of what it is you and Claude Kelly are doing. Um, well, how we met, uh, we met, Def Jam put us together to work on Chrisette Michelle's album, Epiphany. And Clark was one of the first songwriters professionally that I worked with outside of Neo. Because when I got into business, I was just writing with Neo. And uh, so crazy. He was one of the first people that I worked with outside of Neo. And so I was kind of, I was a skeptical because you, you're writing with one of the best. You know what I'm saying? And then be um I wanted it to be the best because he definitely had credits at that point. And so there was like this super hesitation. We both pretty private people, pretty introverted people. And so what struck me right away was our first conversation. He was like, um, what do you think about Chris said? What you think we should give her? I had this idea. I was listening to the Supremes on the plane. And I had this idea about giving her something like that. I listened to her music and I thought that would be perfect. And I was like, man, it's crazy because I was listening to the Supremes and I did this track last night. Because that's what I thought I should give her. It was just this 
because Chris' al- uh, first album sounds nothing like the album that we did. It was just our, that was our vision for it. And so it's a song, uh, I did this track for this song that eventually became Fragile on her album. And it sounded like what he was describing. And it was just this perfect union of people that can see an artist from two different, two different perspectives. He's from New York. I'm from East St. Louis. Two different backgrounds. We're doing two different things on two different paths, but we can see this one artist and feel, have a synergy about what we would give them. And that was the beginning of a super special working relationship, not even the friendship yet, because I'm, I'm super closed off. He's super closed off. So we didn't even know we would be good friends. We just knew we could work really, really well together for the longest time. And so anytime I would have the opportunity or his schedule would free up or my schedule would free up, we just try to get in the room and just write because it was actually a joy to create because we could have the conversation if we have uh, anybody, Jesse J, anybody in the room, we can be like, what you think she gets to give us? Get, what do you think we should give her? And we'd be in synergy with that vision. I would say almost 100% of the time. Uh, no, 100% of the time. I never. He never said, yo, like we should go this way. And I was like, nah, I don't like that. And I've never said, yo, I think we should give her this. And he was like, mm-mm. Usually if I, and it was like either one could spark it. I could be like, man, I think we should go this way. He's like, cool, let's. That's what it is. And so with that, I what I didn't know is that we listened to a lot of the same music. Like he grew up listening to classical music and and I grew up playing classical and that led to gospel and it led me to gospel. And you know what I'm saying? Like it was just, and then we studied the same kind of greatness. And so we have a similar taste in music. And from that, we just kept the ball rolling, man. We got Grammy nominated together. At a certain point, even before we officially made it, it was kind of like we were like a R&B kind of duo that you can go to to get this good R&B song. We was that for a little while. And so that lasted until both of us was just burnt out and was about to quit music. And that's how Lewis York was formed. That's how Weirdo Workshop was formed. Um, that's the people that you see now as a product of us getting ready to quit because if you're a super creative person, anytime you get put in a box, um, it's no good. I wasn't in, I I didn't get in in this to make money. You know what I'm saying? I got in this to express myself. And so when I felt like I couldn't do that anymore, or I couldn't, at a certain point, the music business just become dumb to a creative person. You know what I'm saying? Like I could have a hit, on somebody and then like I, I did Pretty Girl Rock, Rock for Carrie Hilson. So for the next three months, everybody that's coming through my studio, A&Rs, songwriters, singers, all of them want Pretty Girl Rock. And I'm like, what am I doing? Pretty Girl Rock was just something I did that one time that I did that thing that I do. You know what I'm saying? It's not, it wasn't meant to be my sound. It wasn't meant to be how I made lots of money it was just this this expression and so <clears throat> after a while that got to be so annoying to me and I rem- I was fortunate enough and I'll say I'll tell you why I say that but in the process of me getting ready to quit I was fortunate enough to work on this uh, 
rapper's uh, album. This guy from Somali, his name is K-9. And K-9 is this well-connected, super talented guy. And so I did this project that probably hardly nobody has ever heard (laughs) because we spent all the money making the record. So it wasn't a lot of money to market the actual record that we made. But it was like Nas was on the record and Bono was on the record and Will I Am was on the record. It's all these, it's just like, <clears throat> I was literally getting to make my dream music. Steve Jordan that produces uh, uh, John Mayer, he played drums on one of my songs. Like it was that kind of craziness and that kind of level that I got to do this record that nobody heard. <laughs> heard. But it, it, it actually was eye-opening. And that was why I was going to quit because... Uh, it was eye-opening for me because I knew I wasn't crazy because I know that feeling that I felt and I know that music that I made because of that feeling that I felt. And it was some of the best music I had made up to that point. So I wasn't crazy when I was asking, like, if my first placement is Celine Dion, please don't put me in the box to say I'm an R&B producer. You know what I'm saying? Just let me do my thing. And so from from that that point, I... I confided in Claude that I was going to quit music. He confided in me. He was thinking about doing the same thing. And he was at, to me, Claude was always at the highest level that you could possibly play at. It wasn't like, it's not like he was down there just doing C and D list artists. He was always at the highest level. And so to hear him say that, I was like, what are you talking about? I I wouldn't expect that in a million years for him to say that. And that conversation, just like the first conversation we had, really sparked a synergy. And I guess it sparked evidence of a synergy that we've been exploring ever since that conversation. And that, that turned into us becoming a band. Like neither one of us ever, Claude never expressed that he wanted to be a singer or be a front man. And I definitely never expressed that I wanted to be an artist in any form. Um, but that's Lewis York has birthed out, out of that frustration of not getting the right people to express your music so you have to do it yourself. Is that what success is? Which part? I mean, you know, you're as a musician, I feel like so many people think success is like a chart position mm. and it's the game of it. But do you, you seem really relaxed and content with the situation you and Claude are currently in. Mm. Um, I, I th- you know, like, do you, do you find yourself to be, you know, do you feel like you find you figured out what success is at this point in your career? You know, cause I, I think a lot, a lot of songwriters and producers assume that success is when you're at the, when you're, when you have number one songs out. Mm. Uh, but I think the, you know, professional musicians, have different a different view on what success is yeah i from for me i always try not to allow outside forces to define success for me because if i have i will always be depressed and i will always feel not good enough right and when i started to play that game that's when i got depressed and about to quit you know what i'm saying because i didn't feel good enough to to do that i felt bad inside and so 
I really had to to uh, remind myself as a creator that the success ends after the creation of the, the thing is realized. Like what happens with that that creation? Who knows? Who knows? It might be some abstract thing that somebody 72 years from now find in some crate on Spotify's clearance rack upstream things that you can stream and they just fall in love with it and it sparked them to become the next Beethoven or some shit. Who knows what happens with it? And anytime you you put, you try to define success by these little small boxes, you're limiting, you're limiting your possibilities. And so I, I try my best and it's hard because everybody got to eat and everybody, and once you taste a little amount of money, you, you want that to keep going and you want it to keep growing. And so I'm no... I'm no different in that regard, but when it comes to music, the way that I remain pure about it is that once I've seen that thing through from idea to the best of my ability, delivering that thing out, then that's my success. I listen back and say, I'm like, (laughs) to some degree, I'm like, not like God, but in that same thing, like it is finished, like. I can't. I can't worry about if Billboard thinks it's, enough, it's better than Kodak Black's single. I can't think about that. Right. All right. For this final segment, I'm going to do five for five. I'm going to list five things, and you just tell me what comes off the top of your head. There's really no rules to it. So okay. Let's start with Carrie Hilson. First thing that comes to my mind when I think Carrie Hilson, I think, poof, that's hard. I think. Of course, I think Pretty Girl Rock, but I think depression. Oh, interesting. Can you unpack that for a second? Yeah, I mean, I think that was the most depressed I've ever been was in that time because that was just like, that was a, a, a weird time for me. I was transitioning from, I wasn't quite in the situation with Neo. And then, so that was kind of like the last thing of that thing. And uh, it happened after our contract ended. And so I was just in a weird time where I didn't know if I wanted to move forward. And I just didn't know a lot of things. I wasn't feeling the best about myself. Fantasia. When when I think about if Chuck Harmony is ever to be legendary, the beginning of that uh, bittersweet, the piano that starts that song, you can play that at my funeral. I <laughs> feel like there lies legendary Chuck Harmony because that it, it's just it's the most it's the most me. Just that beginning riff, and I watched that. I watched me go out into the world, and people dig it, and it was crazy. Neo. When I think Neo, I think Genesis. I think the gen the beginning of me as a as the producer that I'm to become. Claude Kelly. Genius, best friend. Finally, your mom. Man, you're going to make me cry with that one because she's currently in surgery right now and, and I'm just got my fingers crossed. But that's the best person I've ever met. Well, obviously, I wish her the best. I mean, I I know how complicated that can be. Yeah, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for doing this 
you know, again, like I even said to Claude, like I remember meeting him too in a similar, similar time in my life. And there were just, there weren't that many people that you were like, you know, you'd see, you'd see around and, and, you know, I know that these people didn't, didn't remember. Yeah. I hate that about the music it, business. No, no, it's not. But no, I mean, man, I meet a lot of people and I don't, rem- I don't remember a lot of people and it's not out of so much of this industry is about attainability. Yeah. So on the contrary, I think it's the opposite of that. I think the fact that it was possible for me to come close to people who were doing such great music when I was just trying to learn how to write for other people and try to understand it and, and, and to be that close was just awesome. I don't need, yeah, I don't need anybody else to remember those moments. That's what made me, that's what made me tick. Mm. I mean, that's what made me be, oh, I'm going to put in a little extra effort because I want to be like them someday. That's awesome, you know? man. So to yeah. see, you know, you and Claude, who I respect a lot, to be close with each other and that to still be pushing, doing art, which is a a different thing than aiming for hits. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're the same, but it's a choice, man. Yes, sir. And like, you guys have made it musical choices and that's what makes that's the difference between an artist and just another person in the music business you know that you try to explain to people it's like no your expectations as a listener is going to be you know to hear a song whatever that is a three minute verse pre-chorus chorus or verse chorus verse chorus whatever it is like a typical arrangement Mm. if you know what the box is it's what can you do within that box that's different than what you were expecting to do yourself and what other people have the capability of doing, you know? And, and so you guys just have this skill set that is, you, you know, you guys are just so uniquely qualified and you're so uniquely qualified to do art. So, uh, I appreciate that. watch and, uh, I'm, I'm it's, thank you for being on this. Yeah, man, this is a pleasure. As after I listened to Claude Kelly's podcast, I've been a fan ever since. So it, it really is truly an honor to be on and the writer is this is success too (laughs) this is success there you go thanks for listening to this episode of and the writer is if you want to hear music from this songwriter i just interviewed be sure to check out our spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com if you like what we're doing please subscribe to us You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.